Okay, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Today is Wednesday, January 20, uh, in Taiwan, <clears throat> in the U.S. I guess it's uh, Inauguration Day, and uh, it's uh, <laughs> the QAnon uh, final moment, uh, true or glue, and uh, we'll see. In any case, on to relatively um, timeless, ageless wisdom matters. Continuing discussion in the series or this um, mini-series, uh, Apotheosis, uh, Transfiguration, and the Zhenren. And I found some interesting things. I've been... <clears throat> I, I'm really no expert, or not... not I'm no expert on anything, but I'm no... Um, I'm not well-read on Eastern Orthodox and the history of... Christian uh, religious practice. I, I know a little bit about where these church fathers are coming from and a little bit about the practices, but not much. And so I found all sorts of interesting things uh, this week uh, preparing for today's talk. So what I want to do today <clears throat> is give some kind of a brief summary of the early Christian conception of uh Apotheosis, which means to divinize or make uh, to make a man to, to make a human a god, or to deify, to divinize. Uh, which, as far as I know, in a lot of um, Christian Catholic theology and discussion, uh, is sort of heretical to say I'm God or I'm like God, but um, the kingdom of heaven is within said Yeshua, and uh, there's been a lot of um, changed doctrine, changed theory, changed thinking about changing doctrine and theory over the centuries in Christianity, more so than Buddhism, it seems, where the original, I mean, I guess you could say that Vajrayana Tibetan is quite far from Theravada practice or early Buddhist practice in the forest, uh, but much of the theory um, the core teaching hasn't changed. Uh, in Christianity, you've got this split between Western and Eastern, the great split. And that's, um, th th these are, this is one of the fault lines, it seems. I'm just getting up to speed, and some people know much more about this than I, listening, perhaps. But most people who know much more than, than I in this talk would not be listening. But you may know more. But... <clears throat> One of the fault lines between what became Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholicism versus Eastern Orthodox, and then there's an Eastern Catholic. There's Eastern Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Catholic. So the West-East split in the Christian tradition, one of the fault lines seems to be an interpretation and usage of uh, the transfiguration experience of Yeshua how it was understood and how it was um, developed into practice and theory by the Western and Eastern churches. And um, maybe today or maybe next time I'm going to get into a very interesting write-up of um, uh, a man named Saint Savas of Vatopaidi, which is uh, one of the monastic compounds of Mount Athos, in Greece, I believe, which is Eastern Orthodox monasticism. 
Eastern Orthodox monasticism, I know very little about. I had a friend at the Zen monastery, uh, Stephen, another sort of Saint Stephen, and he killed himself because he was going, he was doing the uh, hardcore practices of some of the Eastern Orthodox or some of the uh, monastic Western sects where he was waking up every three hours to do prayer and practice. And he ended up losing his mind or pushing himself too hard and, um, and killed himself. And so that's not a condemnation of their practice at all. But it is understood, and we'll get when we get into <clears throat> this uh, discussion of uh, hesychasm, like Hezekiah, like uh, the name that some Amish might give themselves, or some very old Catholic or Christian um, families may name their son Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes from hesychasm. Hesychasm is actually related to Greek is, is Greek etymology, but it's associated with um, doing Catholic practice, meditation and prayer and fasting and penance and all sorts of things that may generate an experience of divine light transfiguration similar to the apotheosis uh, of Jesus on Mount Tabor. So we're all we're all in here <laughs> on the uh, examination of uh, the intricacies of what the Catholic Church and the Western tradition looks at as a divinization experience, which is not a heck of a lot different than what Ra calls contact with intelligent infinity. Not so, and involves many of the same principles as Buddhism and Hinduism, such as Samadhi and Prajna, including the triad. Uh, Shila Samadhi Prajna, meaning virtue purification precedes meditative development, Samadhi, Shila, Samadhi, that precedes or is necessary for the final stage of apotheosis or divinization or contact with intelligent infinity or an experience of divine transfiguring light. Ba-boom. And so they have that view in the hesychastic teachings also, particularly from the, West, the Eastern Orthodox. Very interesting. So, uh, quickly, on the Wikipedia page on apotheosis, um, we saw from last time, uh, from the Greek, divinization, deification, deificatio, making divine, and <clears throat> in the, the Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology, uh, just so you know, <laughs> the early church fathers, who were not, hes- were not uh, heretics, basically had the view that man should become God. And that's the point of Christianity. So, uh, <clears throat> the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. From Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> For this is why the Word became man, the Logos became man, and the Son of God became the Son of man, so that, God, so that man by entering into communion with the Word, or Logos, and thus receiving divine sonship, S-O-N, might become a son of God. And that's Irenaeus. So, Westminster Dictionary said, Deification, or theosis, is for orthodoxy the goal of every Christian. I want to be deified. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't know where I got it. Maybe I'm wrong. But that that sounds like that would be setting off lots of... um, blasphemy bells uh, in the mind of most preachers or Christians, if they heard that, the goal is to become a god. Man, according to the Bible, is this is again from Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology, 
on the the term deification. Uh, man, according to Bible, is made in the image and likeness of God. Sure. It's possible for man to become like God, with a capital G, to become deified in order to become God, now small g, to become God by grace. This doctrine is based on many passages of both Old Testament and New Testament. Essentially, is the teaching of both St. Paul and the Fourth Gospel, language of 2 Peter taken up by St. Irenaeus, and that's the Irenaeus. If the word has been made man, it's so that men may be made gods became the standard in Greek theology. <clears throat> Athenaeus says the same thing. St. Cyril of Alexandria says the same thing. We shall become sons with a small s by participation with Texas. Deification is the central idea in the spirituality of St. Maximus the Confessor, for whom the doctrine is the corollary of the Incarnation. And uh, I'll explain that in a moment. Deification, he wrote, this is St. Maximus, Deification, briefly, is the encompassing and fulfillment of all times and ages. And so basically their view is that the incarnation with an I, capital I, meaning the Logos word made flesh as Jesus, Yeshua, for them being the capital S son of capital G God, the one and only capital S son of God, capital G, is a corollary to the deification that that every Christian may experience, or is the ultimate goal, which is very um, which is punctuated by moments of transfiguration, at best, and what the goal, what the ascetics and the monastics are seeking, it seems, is uh, an experience of transfiguration, an experience of union, um, uh, union with God by some kind of experience of light-filled joy, bliss, non-duality. Well, <laughs> sounds like higher jhanas in Buddhism. Mm. Sounds like contact with intelligent infinity. So, and finally, St. Simeon, the new theologian, I said this last time, quote, said, He who is God, by capital G, God by nature converses with those whom he's made gods by grace, small g, and as a friend, that is, as a friend converses with his friends face to face. And so, okay, uh, St. Athanasius, the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Boom. So that's deification. And the primary experience that they point to is what's called transfiguration of Jesus, where he went up to a mountain, Mount Tabor, and became radiant. And then I think Elijah and Moses uh, claimed to appear, were in the experience are claimed by the followers who saw it, or the people who compiled the doctrine, or the, the uh, Gospels of it, saying Elijah and Muhammad, uh, not Muhammad, uh, Moses appeared, and basically sort of all affirmed that, yes, you are the Son of God. Okay. Uh, in these accounts, Jesus and three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, go to a mountain to pray. On the mountain, Jesus begins to shine with bright rays of light, then prophets Moses and Elijah appear next to him, speaks with them. Jesus is then called Son, with a capital S, by a voice in the sky, assumed to be God the Father, as in the baptism of Jesus as well. So uh, this is a major, one of the major events in the life of Christ, or Jesus, according to those traditions, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. Uh as well as maybe some of the Protestants, I don't know, considered one of the miracles of Jesus. 
uh, there's a story. <laughs> there's a story of Shen Hua, the Chinese monk ascetic, student of Shu Yun, who lived to 120, one of the last of the great Chinese Buddhists. Shen Hua, where he where he was uh, found uh, meditating in a hut uh, after his mother passed over, um, and the whole place was filled with light. Some somebody gave an account of that, and so if you read autobiography of a yogi. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda talks about many, many sages and yogis of India throughout the throughout the, the centuries, uh, including male and female, who uh, experienced, uh, who were claimed to manifest radiant light. And this radiant light is, of course, intelligent energy, or prana, or light with a capital L, which is light, love, love, light. And so... This, interestingly, is actually called uncreated light. And so what it looks like to me is that uh, however accurate the Gospels that we're reading today are of whatever happened to Yeshua on Mount Tabor. So something happened to him, I can presume. Maybe it was just as we see in the accounts today. But it looks to me that, that over the centuries, all sorts of people weighed in with their interpretations of what it means and how it... Um, affects theology. The, the theological doctrines were shifting uh, over the centuries uh, with agreement, disagreement uh, on many points and also this point of just what happened during that transfiguration, what it means, uh, what's the nature of that light, whether or not any individual other than Yeshua could experience it, just how much they could experience, what that means for you know, teachings on salvation, uh, just how grace plays into it versus works, all sorts of things. And that was where you get all these doctrinal splits, and then you had the great split of East and West. And interestingly, it seems that the church fathers in the first five centuries, at least, uh, their teaching, which was very ascetic, or, or, or was very compatible with ascetic practice, um, was much for, was very well incorporated into what later became the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic and the monastic traditions of such as Mount Athos and Russia and some other Eastern Orthodox countries. Uh, their praxis, their monasticism, uh, which includes very heavy austerity in some cases, uh, was... Uh, comes out of the first five centuries church fathers' teachings more so than does the Western or Roman Catholic. So now that may be interesting, that may not be interesting, but uh, comparing that to Buddhism and Hinduism <laughs> and then finally getting to the Jinren, the Chinese view, which is Confucian and Taoist and Buddhist, um, we'll come to later. Um... I think that to some degree, just as a kind of a framing statement, uh, Western Catholic Catholic practice, which means Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic both, I think, Eastern Western praxis in Christianity, Catholicism, uh, has suffered, I think, by a doctrinal uh, tanglement, doctrinal. Doctrine, doctrinal entanglement, the thicket of views, as Gautama would say. I think they've got too many views for their own good. And um, 
the nature of practice um, and attainment um, is essentially transconceptual. And that's why they talk about uncreate light, because they couldn't square the notion of, of transfiguring light as deity, as deification, as apotheosis, with the sense that light is conditional. So they had to call it uncreated light, which is fine. Um, but I think that uh, just as that as that little point, I think that over the centuries, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox lineages both uh, suffered in praxis by uh, a thicket of views uh, proliferation as more and more people weighed in on how to square certain uh, experiences, metaphysical experiences, paranormal experience, with their doctrine. While their doctrine had much disagreement among different adherents and that became different sects. And, and the split of Eastern Orthodox and uh, Roman Catholic <clears throat> um, seems to be deeper than the split or, or any, there, there, any apparent split between Theravada and the later Mahayana Vajrayana. For, for, for anybody who thinks that's interesting, <clears throat> I think it's interesting, but it's a fine point. So, as that, with that said, uh, the transfiguration just to, to close that up, from the Wikipedia page, uh, considered a pivotal moment, the setting on the mountain is presented as the point where human nature meets God, which is apotheotic, a meeting place between the temporal and the eternal, with Jesus himself as the connecting point acting as bridge between heaven and earth. Well, that's a very fine teaching, actually, except for the fact that uh, all humans or the, the human incarnation. So we've got the incarnation with a capital I and transfiguration with a capital T that according to doctrine occurred to the one and only Son of God with a capital S for Son and a capital G for God. Then there's our incarnation with a small I that according to their teachings, uh, these teachings from the Church Fathers and Eastern Orthodox and the Hesychastics, um is that experience is available to all of us to become God with a small g or a deifying, divinizing, transfiguring experience of uh, divine light. So our experience too, or our, in our experience of incarnation, is itself a meeting place of temporal and eternal. <clears throat> That's the notion of um, the, the incarnation as crucifixion. Uh, incarnation, particularly for wanderers, <laughs> but for all souls or all entities, 3D incarnation, particularly, right? You can say incarnation in any dimension is a, a manifest is is a bridge of uh, the trans octavic logos and the create created temporal um, material realm of illusion and and tra and um, impermanence <clears throat> that that. Crucif the incarnation for Yeshua with a capital I and incarnation for all beings with a small I is itself a crucificatory or crucifixional experience where there is a bridge or a juncture, a junction between heaven and earth or between the logoic uh, pre-create, non-create and its manifestation as creation and light and matter and energy. And so 
this is like the group Enigma, the cross of changes. And so incarnation as a cross uh, in which uh, what is essentially immaterial experiences um, a vivid, uh, illusory, material identity. Right? We say, I am Scott, I am male, I am in this body, I am in this lifetime. Well, that's temporally, relatively, experientially true, but not essentially uh, substantial. Meaning, uh, (laughs) what we are persists after the body falls away and the mind of this personality falls away, the incarnation falls away with the small eye, and we go back to a higher dimension and uh, return to a greater consciousness um, of greater identity closer to true nature. And then we leave that, and we leave that, and we leave the next. <clears throat> and eventually the being um, finishing dimensional reincarnation returns to source. So who is that being anyway? Is that being any different than its source when it inevitably, eventually returns to source? How can it return to source if it's not of source? So, um, and what is its true? What when all the veils are stripped away? What do we see? We are, right? We see true nature, and that's uh, inseparable from its source. Just as Ross said, the metaphysical is inseparable from the physical. Physical and the metaphysical are inseparable. So Jesus as the connecting point, human incarnation as a connecting point or bridge between spirit and matter, between the logoic and the uh, illusory material. And so that's a very important matter. And, and transfiguration, whether it's a um, you know, doctrinal opinion or the experience of Yeshua, and um, the what proclamation that he was the one and only son of God, uh, maybe that happened, maybe it didn't. Who can say? I can't say. I don't believe that all scripture is well translated, as we can see. Meanwhile, uh, what happened to him, whatever it was in detail, um, is muchly available to us, uh, not in the same way, I mean, potentially in the same way. It depends on your theology, right? If you say that he's the one and only Son of God, with a capital S, then it could what happened to him could only happen to him it couldn't happen to us if you have the view that the returning to source is the purpose of existence ross said the purpose of incarnation is evolution of mind body spirit and we're talking about reincarnation and they're not meaning eastern view metaphysical spiritual view is reincarnation this christian catholic view doesn't seem to be of that and so they have one chance to uh, achieve eternal perfection. And uh, the Eastern view is quite different, is that um, there's regular reincarnation uh, to achieve complete and total perfection and enlightenment. So they're quite different. <clears throat> Just a moment. But what... So depending on your view, <laughs> um, more or less... The apotheotic experience of Yeshua is available to us. <clears throat> the early church fathers understood that while still making a distinction between 
Yeshua as the incarnation with a capital I and the one and only Son with a capital S of God versus us becoming gods or uh, divinized but not that that one and only Son of God who took that incarnation. Yet, the Eastern traditions will say, of course, (laughs) man becoming God is the purpose of the spiritual path and the goal and the the purpose of uh, experience. Ra saying, uh, the original desires that entities seek and become one. Of course. And so that's not essentially contradictory to the early church fathers uh, picked up by the Eastern Orthodox and the monks of Mount Etos and the other monastics that transfiguration to some degree in some way is very possible by praxis. And so uh, as to how far it can go, it'll depend on, I mean, different lineages, East and West have their own view. Uh, the Eastern view clearly is that um, the Buddhist view, of course, is that entities um, becoming arhan return to what's called the deathless, which is the uncreate, which is the source of uncreate light. It's intelligent infinity, or infinity, or the infinite that um, uh, is prior to the creation of light. And in Hindu or Vedanta tradition that's called, you know, Satchitananda or reality awareness, the bliss, and Jivatman becomes one with Paramatman, which means the uh, higher self, <laughs> Atman, the, the, the soul generating Atman, Jivatman, or the ensouled Atman, Jiva, at one then with Atman being called Jivatman, returning to Paramatman or the greater Atman which is Parabrahman, which is Brahma, or the end of the path, or source. So they talk about it in different ways, but clearly it seems to me it's the same. And uh, how far this these practices go, I'm not sure, because it seems that um, there's a limited understanding. The, the Christian, the Catholic, Christian Catholic, both Western Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Catholic Eastern Catholic seems to have a of li- a, a limited view of human potential. Actually, they they seem to while they um, they they admit the potential of divinization, deification, becoming God with a small g, um, salvation. It's a very um, it's it's it seems to be quite limited. Um, where you know they, they, the the idea is what the 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 believer or the and or the monk by practice and virtue and faith and then grace is saved quote saved then what goes to heaven and sits there forever something like that it seems uh, because they can't reincarnate because they didn't they rejected reincarnation or don't want to talk about it. Uh, that's strange. <laughs> and um, what then happens after so-called salvation or entry to the kingdom of heaven on earth or the kingdom of heaven? Uh, I don't know. It's a little unclear to me. So, in any case, 
when we look at the Wikipedia page on the Tabor Light, which is the uh, discussion of the nature of the light Yeshua experienced on Mount Tabor during Transfiguration, which was apotheosis or an apotheotic experience, like a very much, again, like a contact with intelligent infinity, which is, and that intelligent infinity is contacted or, or linked by uh, the gateway, six chakra to seven. So it's a six, seven chakra fusion from an Eastern perspective or from my <laughs> integrated perspective. The shuttle to intelligent infinity is activated, the gateway is open, contact is made, and the experience is uh, of temporary effulgence of um, intelligent energy, which is called light, which whose nature is love. And that's uh, beatific, and that's apotheotic, and that's transfiguring. Uh, and maybe that's what happened to Yeshua. Uh, and this is where we see the fault, one of the fault lines between the Eastern and Western Catholic traditions. So the Wikipedia page called The Light of Tabor, The Light Revealed on Mount Tabor at Transfiguration of Jesus, then later became doctrinally formulated and led to a schism <laughs> and led to all sorts of struggle. <clears throat> formulated as the doctrine, the uncreated nature of the light of Tabor, right? So they couldn't consider that it was created light, but they had to consider that it was uncreated or a manifestation of the supreme, you know, God the Father. Gregory Palamas, Atonite monk, I think that means from Mount Athos or Aton, uh, defended against mystical practices, and so he was defending the mystical practices of hesychasm against then accusations of heresy by Barlam of Calabria, <clears throat> who ended up losing. And uh, the, Pal the Palamist faction prevailed only after military victory of John VI of Cantacuzenos in the Byzantine Civil War, 1341-1347. So they started formulating this in the 14th century, Mount Athos was moving right along in development of monasticism in the 11th, 10th, and 11th centuries. Uh, this is the root of uh, monastic, one of the roots of monastic practice in Eastern Orthodox tradition, and it started with a big struggle <laughs> where he formulated a doctrine, and the other guy um, said, you're wrong. He said, you're a heretic. Mr. Balam of Calabria said, you're a heretic. Uh, that's been going on for a long time. So the view was very controversial when first proposed, sparking the Hezekast controversy. And again, the Pal Palamist faction prevailed later. Since 1347, it's been the official doctrine of Eastern Orthodoxy. The doctrine seems to be that the transfiguring light Yeshua experienced on Mount Tabor was uncreated. And Okay, there's no need to fight a war on that, but and it seems to be uh, asso associated with the belief that that uh, devotees or practitioners, particularly monks and ascetics, can experience the same if they, you know, have done the sufficient preparatory work for it, and that's the big difference between Western, Eastern Catholic, Catholic, Western Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox views associated with uh, practice and theory. Um, the Western Catholic, Roman Catholic, seems to be uh, theory-heavy, 
and belief. So faith and faith seeking grace. While the Eastern includes that, but all, uh, you know recognizes faith leading to grace, I guess, but seems to be a little heavier on the practice side too. And um, that's not surprising. <laughs> the Eastern mind is a little closer to the the Eastern Orthodox is closer to the uh, the Buddhist Hindu sphere uh, sphere of operations. Um, and I would wonder if um, <laughs> I wonder if any of the I, I, I would imagine that over the centuries, a few Eastern Orthodox monastics. Uh, had exposure to Buddhism, Hinduism. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of them realized, if I drop all this thinking of doctrine and theory and um, uh, my school's uh, dogma, my lineage dogma, and uh, all of this thick conceptual um, webbing associated with my practice... Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if my doctrines are, uh, sound or not. If you stop thinking, are your doctrines sound? <laughs> if the, if the mind, when the mind is still and there's non-proliferation of samskara or sankara or thought and one doesn't think much, silence of mind at a steady state, what view is true? Well, I don't have any view then. So silence of mind at a steady state called samadhi, tranquility, pekka, right, uh, samatha, uh, tranquility, uh, calm, peaceful abiding samadhi. If that's, if that is persisted in, if one persists in that, with awareness, with alertness, right, looking, I can, you know, I'm not a zombie. I'm clear-eyed, and capable of sensory experience, capable of thought capable of observation and dialogue, but the mind is quiet. What views are true? <laughs> well, there are no views at that point. And that's the kind of approach that I mean, which is just, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, elliptically presented there, uh, when I say that I think the, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox, which is the more practice-oriented lineage of the Catholic tradition after the split. Uh, even they suffer, I think, from excessive views or uh, thicket of views, entanglement in the thicket of views. But that's another matter. Because I would imagine if you really, when, if any of them got to long, long samadhi, they might wonder why they're so concerned with, with so many views. You know, it, at one level, an essential presentation of, of Theravada or Pali Canon Buddha Dhamma is that the only view is that what's subject to arising is subject to passing away. I think that they asked Shariputta or one of the one of the senior monks, "What is your view then? <laughs> if you say that uh, the self is not in the body or outside the body, and uh, ultimately what's in between affirmation and negation, right? Nagarjuna, Madhyamaka, middle way teaching, the philosophy of uh, Sunya." Really, <laughs> uh, that uh, reality can neither be affirmed or negated conceptually. The conceptual conceptualization, thinking, view, is going to be affirmatory or negatory. 
negatory. Negative meaning affirmation or negation, meaning it is or it isn't. I am, I am not. Self is, self isn't. This is, this isn't. Right? No, the many, the many is, no, the many isn't. It's all real, no, it's all illusion. All that, all of that is the world of concept, namarupa. And um, in the world of namarupa, um, uh, persistence in samadhi or non-proliferation or steady silence of mind at a steady state leads to uh, a recognition that all namarupa is illusory or all views are empty of eternal substance or abiding. View itself is unstable. And that includes a very finely tinkered, tailored um, uh, theological doctrine. Tinkered, tailored <laughs> uh, theological doctrine, like um, what constitutes some of the many splits or, or doctrinal differences between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. Catholic. Um, they're all view. It's all view. It's all mental, mental act- activity. It's all samskara. And, you know, Gautama said, even consciousness is born of ignorance, how much more so samskara or thought form generation, images, mentation, monastic function, which is all illusory, as Nityananda would say. So with the buddhic function or um, intelligent discrimination or, or wise discerning, one will see the whole realm of belief some of which is codified to dogma from doctrine, some of which is just surmise and a sense. The whole thing is illusory, empty, um, evanescent, like a dream, like a butterfly, like a, like a bubble, like a dewdrop, as the sutta says, sutra. And so uh, the illusory, empty nature of view, <laughs> meaning concept, um, is probably not so well appreciated by even the Eastern Orthodox. However... You'll find it someplace. However, the Roman Catholic doesn't like that, it seems. And so that's what we're looking into here is um, doctrinal uh, distinction between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, between the teaching, the, the Roman Catholic papal type teaching that seems to favor, that, that defines the path seem to be as uh, faith generate faith and obedience generating faith uh, generating grace, the the divine grace comes by faith and obedience, uh, you know, and dot dot dot. That's your path to salvation. Versus the Eastern Orthodox, which accepts that I assume, and then uh, incorporating <laughs> early Church Fathers' view that uh, apotheosis is available for all, and is not heretical. Uh, incorporates praxis, particularly something called the Jesus Prayer. And then they have all sorts of ascetic um, other practices that support that type of constant prayer. And yet, even they did recognize, some of them, that you've got to get beyond thinking. But when you get beyond thinking, you get beyond your dogma, and you get beyond doctrine, and you get beyond your sect, and you get beyond your own group. And that's dangerous if you don't, if you want to hold followers. So if you want to hold followers and you want to be a political power, you better uh, keep defending your dogma or your doctrine. You better harden your doctrine to dogma. (laughs) You better harden your doctrine to dogma 
if you want to keep your followers and keep the cash, you keep that touching going. Touching, touching. If you want touching and bling, you better harden your doctrine to dogma and talk about infallibility. Mm. And then uh, terrify those who follow to believe that if you don't follow this hardened doctrine, which is called dogma, which is infallible, you go to hell and burn forever, bub. And so if you don't want that, you better stay and uh, keep your faith and um, don't stray from the flock. And, and practice is dangerous then. Too much practice is dangerous because, hey, you may think you're God. Um, but hey, uh, St. Athanasius and Irenaeus said that's the goal of our practice. But they meant but with a small g. There's nothing narcissistic about it, you know? <laughs> becoming God doesn't mean becoming a, an asshole. It, become, it means um, being touched by, um, by greater light, pow- light love power. And the result of that actually is a, is a reaffirmed desire to continue purification and service. But that takes time, and, you know, I'm not putting myself up as a saint. I have human desires. But um, this, this discussion of apotheosis and transfiguration event and the Tabor light and how over the centuries, pretty much, you know, 700, 800 years ago, uh, it became a, the Hesychast uh, uh, schism, very much associated with... Um, hardening the split between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. And yet, if you really practice, if you really enter into samadhi, it's going to be very hard to hold your doctrinal opinions so strongly. And that's called the great unknowing. And um, that's called, uh, on. Ha- there was a book a Zen student wrote, On Having No Head, H-E-A-D. And so becoming headless <laughs> is related to that. Uh, and don't put a head on top of your head as a Buddhist teaching, I think it's Chan, is um, don't get stuck in your conceptualizations uh, and don't believe that your conceptualizations are reality. Uh, but it, do, it seems that in general, the Western Catholic Christian tradition, East, Eastern Orthodox and Western Roman Catholic, um, haven't realized that, uh, that samskara is sunya. The thought form is empty and illusory and insubstantial, and um, they don't know samadhi so well, it seems. So, now, uh, going going further with the discussion of Tabor Light, according to the Hesychast mystic tradition of Eastern Orthodox spirituality, a completely purified saint who has attained divine union, now whether they think that's eternal or not, meaning... uh, we don't know because they don't talk. They don't seem to understand reincarnation. A completely purified saint who has attained divine union experiences the vision of divine radiance. That's the same light that was manifest to Yeshua's disciples on Mount Tabor at Transfiguration. That's called Teoria, Teoria, an experience of divinity, which actually is uh, the raw material intelligent infinity, uh, intelligent energy, oh, contact with intelligent infinity which is a joyful, profoundly joyful experience. Yes, unutterable joy or bliss. Um, And Ra even said that it's very common that the person who has a contact with intelligent infinity 
um, desi- immediate desires immediately the end of the incarnation, <laughs> as a very strong desire to end the incarnation. It's so good, I want to die. Die means I want to stop this continued incarnation so that I can live indefinitely, perpetually, ceaselessly in the bliss of the joy of the contact with intelligent infinity that I just had. Whether that's conceived that way or not doesn't matter. There's a sense of, it's so good, I don't want to ever get out of it. I don't want to ever lose it. I want to stay. And that's like the heroin addiction, right? Why do most heroin junkies destroy themselves? Because they can't live life between uh, their heroin high and the down and the, the low. Plus there's the addictive qualities of, of uh, the compounds, which is a, a real problem. So the uh, psychoactive compounds are seriously physiologically addictive. But it's uh, common that, that, and it's very similar to Carla's experience in channeling the raw material, where she was experiencing some kind of increasing weariness and Ross said that was simply an un, un, an inevitable and unavoidable um, out, outcome or result of uh, spending so much time in a higher dimension where her mind, uh, temporarily displaced from body during the channeling, spending so much time in a higher dimensional realm, the contrast between that experience of, of great, great shanti peace, great light, great love, great ease, Great silence, like like being at one with a vast still ocean, um, lying on the on the surface of a vast ocean, and feeling the enormity of that ocean, um, and near perfect stillness, and feeling at one with that whole ocean, lying on one's back, not needing to breathe, of course. Uh, as an experience, you know, as a figurative experience, but that's what it, what it would be like in sixth density, or that's what it's like when there's a, pers- a persistence in contact with challenge infinity. <clears throat> Not needing to breathe, no vibration, near perfect stillness, at one with that vast ocean uh, upon my back, my back as the vast as a vast ocean of stillness that is love, right, loving. The, the nature of water as very loving, um, feeling that uh, is akin to living in sixth density. Is akin to where her how she was feeling when her mind was temporarily displaced from body during the channeling, which is an experience of uh, akin to contact with intelligent infinity at least, and uh, would naturally lead to a desire uh, to stay there forever and not um, continue the incarnation if uh, it comes from an incarnate state. So <laughs> there's no doctrine needed for all that. And, and, and ultimately the words become very few the further up the mountain we go. The, the, the desire to speak decreases radically as, as consciousness ascends the, the ladder up to the crown, of course. <laughs> so, uh, so... It's interesting. Um, this there's a, it's written on the Tabor Light Wikipedia page. This experience, the transfiguration, is referred to as Theoria. Barlam and Barlam was the guy who said that's heretical, right? It's heretical to say that 
want, that this is God's light that's available for you. Um, where they were coming from is by saying, God is unavailable. So anyway, the write-up says, Barlam, the guy who said uh, that that uh, Palama, Palamas was a heretic, right? You're a heretic for saying that this was God's light. Well, that doesn't seem, that seems weird. Uh, because saying it's God's light seems to give some sense that God can manifest to that degree. Uh, and then I guess it seems to open the door. I think what they really were worried about, why he was screaming heretic. <laughs> Be careful of people who are screaming uh, aggressively uh, that you're bad. The ones, the, you know, Satan the accuser, people who are accusatory are doing Orion's work, generally. It's useful to call a spade a spade, but to make accusation and fighting hate <laughs> one's uh, lifestyle uh, generally does the work of increasing hate. So they fight hate hatefully. So beware of those who fight hate hatefully. Uh, generally, they're doing the work of Orion. So Mr. Barlam saying that uh, Palamas was a heretic. Uh, it said Barlam and the West and Western Christianity, meaning Roman Catholic at that point, interpretation of apophaticism, apophaticism, being the absence of God rather than the unknowability of God. So apophatic theology, written up here as negative theology, um, a form of re- a theological thinking, lots of thinking, and religious practice which attempts to approach God by negation uh, in terms of way not what may not be said about the perfect goodness of God. And so there's the affirmative and the negatory, or there's talking about the positive virtues of God or deity or enlightenment, or talking in the way of all that it is not. Ultimately, it's unknowable, but we have certain words um, that are useful to some degree, like infinity, or bliss, or omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. I think that's not too bad. Meanwhile, those are words, and we're not, we don't have the experience yet. Anyway... So Barlam and Western Christianity as a whole, or the Roman Catholic Church as a whole, with their emphasis on apophatic apophatic way, the apophatic way, or apophaticism, apophaticism, this sort of neti-neti approach, like the Hindus did, um, to understand deity, um, knowing it's unknowable, (laughs) knowing that source is unknowable, we can surely say all that it is not, um, because that's safer than trying to say what it is. So a part of the, but then there was a split in what this apophaticism really is. Some say it was the absence of God, and others say it's the unknowability of God, or intelligent infinity, or source, or logos. It held, so he held the view that the hesychists were polytheistic, eh? inasmuch as it seemed to postulate two eternal substances, a visible which they call divine energies, and an invisible divine wosia, or essence. So this is how what I mean by these guys got real tangled in the thicket of views. Secco and Maspero assert that the Palamite doctrine of uncreated light is rooted in Palamas' reading of Gregory of Nyssa, Nyssa, 
And so uh, to, to avoid being called a heretic or in his own view, the light was seen as uncreated. <laughs> so as to avoid the uh, accusation that he's a heretic or polytheistic, <laughs> he's polytheistic because he said it was, if you say it's divine light that's created, it's too weird. So the claim, the, the argument from the accusers was something like the hesychists who believed that it was divine uncreate light were polytheistic <laughs> because they, they, the accusers say that the others say, let me tell you what you're saying. I know what you're saying and therefore you're bad. <laughs> it's a very cute approach here. And so I know uh, Scott hates this. Scott, when, he's, when you say this word, I know you really mean that, and therefore you're bad for meaning that and saying this as a coded way of meaning that, say the accusers. Things like that. So, uh, <laughs> Palamas was attacked by being be calling polytheistic, where he, he was claimed by the attacker, Mr. Barlam, sounds like Baal as well, uh, claimed to be polytheistic as he seemed to be postulating two eternal substances, a visible and an invisible. <laughs> uh, where there's also some view that the visible uh, couldn't be of uh, divinity. It's too weird. I don't even know where they're coming from. So then, anyway, uh, they said, hey, it's not that. I'm not polytheistic. I'm saying it's an uncreated light. Okay. And so Palamas defended hesychasm in the 1340s at three different synodes in Constantinople. He wrote a number of works in his defense. He uses a distinction, saying, like, I'm not a polytheist. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a heretic. I'm just saying uh, this was divine light. But is it okay? Can't say that? And uh, he was drawing a distinction between energies or operations of God versus the essence of God. He taught that the energies or operations of God, what we would call intelligent energy, were uncreated. Well, if they're of light, then they're created, no? I mean, light is something, no? Even if it's uh, intelligent energy, uh, that's a something that came out of infinity before there was some things. That's a letting there be light is a creation, no. But he said that the energies and operations of God were uncreated because I think these guys had some view that 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 uh, transcendence and immanence are not can't be reconciled. You can't say that God is uh, what God is. I mean, I don't, I don't, what I don't really know where these guys are coming from because there are all sorts of strange, deep, deep. View, deep core beliefs that lead them to reason in certain ways to justify um, further views down the line. Meaning they have some sense that God can't be known, so therefore the light has to be uncreated. <laughs> Meanwhile, they can't say that, yeah, the whole of Logos or God can't be known, but all is the one infinite creator anyway, or all is God anyway. And we can know a little, though understanding is not of our density. Okay. I, I don't know totality, and all my knowing is illusory, but it's apparently real or valuable. It's certainly, if, if, if utilitarian, 
our illusory partial knowing. Meanwhile, yeah, of course, the infinite can't be known conceptually or even experientially because there will be no subjectivity at that point. Okay, fine. But then, I don't know what was going on with these guys, but they had all sorts of very deep views that they had to defend with other, while they came up with other doctrines. So he taught that the essence of God can never be known by his creatures, even in the next life, but that his, it should be capital H, but God's uncreated energies or operations can be known in both in this life and the next, and can convey to the hesychast, meaning the person who's seeking that transfiguration, in this life and to the righteous of the next life as a true spiritual knowledge of God, theoria. In Palamite theology, and again, this is the basis of lots of Eastern Orthodox practice, it is the uncreated energies or operations of God that illumine the hesychast who has been vouchsafed an experience of uncreated light. So they felt that they had to call it uncreated to defend some deeper view that God is unknowable or that uh, they're not polytheists. <laughs> that if you said that this light is created light, then you're polytheistic. It's too strange. So anyway, they had another dispute in 1341 uh, at Constantinople, and um, they they condemned Barlam. So they were still okay with uh, experience of transfiguring light by that time. And, of course, Balaam uh, recanted and then became a bishop in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, defeated. And so he was <clears throat> uh, condemned because he screamed at the other guy, uh, which is useful to uh, condemn the accuser, not the accused in certain cases. So, okay, uh, this polemism theology of divine operations was never accepted by scholastic theologians of the Latin Catholic Church, meaning the Roman Catholic, who maintained a strong view of the simplicity of God conceived of as actus purus, a pure act, um, the absolute perfection of God, they seemed to believe was incompatible with a manifestation of that in this transfiguring light in some way, for some reason. I don't know why. So I think they really just didn't want people practicing. Mm. They just, I'd say, mm, the real, I mean, you know, people who love power, I mean, there are people who love power all over the place, East-West, and Eastern Orthodox, Western Roman Catholic too. Uh, they don't want to lose power. And one way to lose power is uh, for followers and devotees and the community to believe they don't need you. <laughs> and that you're not a supreme power, and that they can do what uh, you tell them only you can do for them. If they believe they can do for themselves what you tell them only you can do for them, they may realize that they don't need you. Oh, And so then, <clears throat> uh, the, the open-hand teacher, Gautama said he was, um, Nichinanda was, most true Buddhists are open-hand. Vajrayana teachers, on the other hand, esoteric Chinese-Japanese teachings are closed-hand, meaning um, I'm only going to give you some part of the truth because you are going to continue needing me, the teacher-guru, um, for a long, long time. Gautama basically said, here's the view, here's the practice, go do it, 
and take care of yourself and finish it. That's it. So this is a little, looks to be a little bit like a closed hand teaching that says, uh, God is simple, pure, essential, and can't manifest light. He can't be known, can't be experienced, and therefore you, you're, you can't practice, or your practice goes nowhere, or your practice is heretical, or you're a blasphemer if you believe that you can have uh, your own type of deification or divinization or uh, transfiguration or apotheosis. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Pope John, the Paul, John Paul II, who's a nice-looking man, actually, good man, seems to be from a face, a very fine face, opened the possibility for reconciliation by expressing personal respect for the doctrine. Uh-huh. So that doctrinal division went for many centuries, 500 years. Reinforced the East-West split of the Great Schism throughout the 15th through the 19th centuries. And so... Roman Catholicism traditionally sees, uh, according to the scholars, even against Aquinas, who said (laughs) you could become God, sees the glory manifested Tabor as symbolic, not literal, not real, he didn't really get it, symbolic of eschatological glory of heaven, meaning the end times. And so, um, and they come out with uh, a uh, Latin hymn, Colestis formam gloriae, basically talking about how wonderful this vision was, uh, and you better feel more devotion and don't practice, <laughs> and stay with your grace, stay with your faith and obedience, and, and you need us, and um, you'll get your salvation if you stay loyal to us and the teaching um, by faith and obedience and uh, tithing, I guess. Uh, and then you'll then grace will come or you'll get salvation, but don't practice. So that's very interesting. Meanwhile, in there were certain mystics like um, um, John of Ruisbroek. Ruisbroek wrote of the uncreated light, which is not God, but is the intermediary between him and the seeing thought, as illuminating the contemplative, not in the highest mode of contemplation, but in the second of the four ascending modes. Just like the four higher jhanas, Rupa Jhana, right? So some Western mystics coming out of the Roman Catholic tradition did realize that transfiguration is available for them to some degree and that it is of this uncreated light or is, you know, it's very crazy. They're just tangled in their dogma, it seems to me, in their doctrine. The uncreated light, which is not God. So what? There's light that wasn't created and isn't God? I thought God was infinity. No? So you see, I don't know, they seem to have some fear of the word infinity in, in Christian, Catholic theology, doctrine, dogma, and all that. They seem to be afraid of infinity. I don't know why. Maybe it, uh, uh, it opens too many doors or it um, pushes them out of the way. I'm not really sure what it is. So he wrote... It's the uncreated light, which is not God, but is an intermediary between him and the seeing thought. Well, uh, how can there be anything that's not God if God is the source of all creation and all light and is infinite and is omnipresent? How can it not be? Uh, they don't seem to answer that. So, okie dokie, you do your thing. Uh, all I want to say on hesychism is that the Greek word from the page on hesychasm, you know, there's a real problem there. (laughs) 
they they talk about God, but don't seem to understand that that God, Father, Source, Intelligent, Infinity, un, you know, one infinite creator is infinite. God is not infinite. Then what's the point? It's not God. Oh, really? How can it be? This is because they're tangled in dog in doctrine. Seems to me. So, <laughs> and if you stay long in stillness, you will realize that all your views are empty, and uh, sunya, and uh, tat. Tatvamathi, or uh, all, you know, reality is right in front of you, but you won't uh, get it or know it by concept. And um, concept can't go there. Mental function, mental monastic thought form production can't fully explain anything. And surely is not the same as tasting sugar. So talking about doctrine... Uh, is like having sugar in your palm. And like Nityananda said, taste it. <laughs> then you'll know. That's uh, Swabhava, becoming Swaraj, self-rulership. And that's just what Gautama said, and that's what the Eastern, all, you see, the Eastern traditions came out of yogis sitting alone in the forest, in China, and in India, and in Tibet, and some other places. In the old days, when Conan the Barbarian lived. There were guys in the forests of southern India and northern India and Tibet, I, I assume, some, and probably Persia or that Middle East, you know, Central Asian zone and China uh, who were doing yogic practice. And they didn't write anything down. Uh, and they were inspired. And that became the uh, rootstock of Chinese Taoism and Vedantic teaching. I mean, you know, the the, Veda te- the Vedas that seem to be uh, 4,000 years old or so. <coughs> and so what started as the workings, the, the praxis of individual yogis became religious lineages, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, yeah, Taoism, um, with very strong um, emphasis on the potential of the individual. Uh, Get right view, practice correctly, base in virtue and cleansing, purification, purification and virtue, then concentrative mind practice uh, of whatever type with whatever technique. And the next, and then uh, transfiguration will happen. Uh, Vipassana insight will come. Breakthroughs, realizations, uh, you know, milestones indicating perfection of the seven chakras, transfiguring um, apotheotic experience, will come and it's completely open to the individual without any intermediary needed. <clears throat> Neither priest nor church nor synod is necessary. The East retained that. The West lost it long ago. Or the West withered it. And it retain it's retained more so in the Eastern Orthodox than the Western. <clears throat> but um, is much um, emaciated in the Western, in the Roman Catholic, 
<laughs> understandably, and um, not so well appreciated, you know, and well appreciated, but um, probably a bit tangled in doctrine for the Eastern Orthodox. Meanwhile, there's always been, you know, there have never been more than a few who've risen head and shoulders above the mass anywhere, anytime, any place, any institution, whether it's a religious organization or a community of yogis or um, philosophical or academics. <clears throat> there are not that many who go far and head, head shoulders above the rest. And those are the ones we need to listen to. At least I do. Uh, and that's why I focus on these people, Nityananda and Gautama and Linchi and Ramana Maharshi and Advaita Vedanta and the Gnostics. And that's why I pull from all these different traditions to find truth wherever it stands. So that'll be it for today. <laughs> Lots to digest if you care for it. Next time, uh, I'll close the reading, the, the portion of the pay, portion of the talk on hesychasm and then give an example, a life of Saint Sarvas or Savas of Vatopaidi. Very interesting. He was called the fool for Christ and a real ascetic, completely 100% committed fellow. <clears throat> and it doesn't look a heck of a lot different than, the, than a, a hardcore Buddhist Hindu yogi. It's really not much different at all, his life. And he really walked the talk. And um, yet, um, I think they're all held back by certain uh, doctrinal thickets, the thicket of doctrinal view. Uh, in any case, I hope it's interesting to you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Take good care of yourself, and good night.